And welcome to yet another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And just like Russia helped Donald wiretap his way to victory, tonight we are wiretapping through Mark's collection of DWBs as we drag you, our lovely listeners, through the archives. Mark, welcome back to another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. How have you been? Extremely well, Rob. How is your good self? I can't complain too much. Like, I mean, I could complain, but I'm, I'm not, so I won't. And I've put you on mute anyway. So. Have you? Excellent work. <laughs> Very good. Now, uh, as we all know by now, the Doctor Who trailer for the new series has been dissected to the point that it's just giblets on the floor. And... Uh, <laughs> Basically, as we promised a couple of episodes ago, any discussion of the new series is verboten until further notice. So, Mark, we're going to throw ourselves into one of our staples, another drag from the archives uh, special. Ayaldi faithful, because we haven't really got anything else to talk about. Well, that's true. I mean, <laughs> what can one say? There's rumours bubbling in the background of a female doctor being cast and... Uh, the BBC frantically keeping that under wraps, and they'll probably have announced it by the time this episode comes out. But as we said, positively verboten. So we're going to be moving on to... Uh, well, we, what are we looking at, Mark, in terms of uh, dragging uh, from the archive? And just like this is Stephen Moffat's last series, we're going to look at the build-up to the last season of the classic series. And where have you uh, researched? Where, where have you gone to? Have you gone to the Old Faithful again? Totally focused on DWB. And uh, this one is uh, from DWB issue 64 in April 1989. So it's mid-1989. What were you doing in mid-1989, Mark? Just just for uh, reference and context. I was still working in Target, mate. <laughs> and doing Year 12. Well, did we do Year 12 at the same time? 89? Yeah, I think we did. Probably not in the same remand centre, no. <laughs> We would have rioted, mate, like they do today. So, a bit, a bit of local colour there for people who might. Eighteen be months is too long to be locked up. <laughs> so let's tear the place down. <laughs> All right. So this is from DWB sixty four Doctor Who Bulletin. Before they went through about three different iterations of their name. I think during these issues, it did switch over from uh, Doctor Who Bulletin to Dream Watch Bulletin. Did it? That was a silly name, wasn't it? Well, that's what you call it, really. They did move on to Star Trek and, and other genre stuff, didn't they? Very next-gen heavy, because let's be honest, that was winding up as, as who was winding down. And mm. they had some really interesting articles on Blake 7 and, and The Prisoner and a couple of those things. So that was actually quite good to expand it. I remember um, reading with some amusement that Ian Levine allegedly paid for articles covering Wise Guy, the US TV series Wise Guy. Was he anyone watching it? Uh, well, apparently, I would have, I would imagine he'd had friends or contacts in the US who were you know mailing him videotapes back in the day videotapes ruled the world mate. did you watch Wise Guy I never heard of it apparently it's quite good um, but it's one of those things that I've heard a lot about and read the synopsis uh, but never actually got onto but you know I've got plenty of time to be sitting around watching television at the moment <laughs> No. All right, so we've gone right off the beaten track, but let's go back to this article from April 1989. Begins. Now, we must preface this by saying that DWB's uh, in-house style was started at hysterical and just wound all the way through to uh, <laughs> rabid. So just keep that in mind for some of the language used. All right, so headed with new axe threat. A new question mark is looming over Doctor Who's future on BBC TV. Following a leak from a recent internal meeting between BBC One controller Jonathan Powell, boo hiss, and representatives of BBC Enterprises. Powell is alleged to have spoken out confidentially against the program, saying he wants to be rid of it altogether after season 26, and that, quote, no amount of fans, complaints, or media campaigning will save it this time, unquote. 
While these allegations can't be completely substantiated, and I'll editorialise here, that's never stopped DWB (laughs) from printing anything that can't be substantiated. Several facts support it. Well, facts, but anyway. Alternative facts? Alternative facts, that should be prefaced. Uh, Firstly, Sylvester McCoy's three-year contract expires at the end of season 26, and once filming is complete, the BBC will have seen to have honoured it. Script editor Andrew Cartmel has also intimated he will leave with Sylvester. As for John Nathan Turner, the very fact that he was told to stay put for one more year suggests the BBC have lost confidence in Doctor Who altogether. Certainly, it did seem last year, when the BBC was seriously considering the options for a new producer, including Paul Stone, that they might subsequently tender the program to an independent production company for season 27. But Powell also reputedly stated, categorically, the Doctor Who has no future on his channel, independently produced or not, while he is there. News of the leak reached DWM editor John Freeman, who contacted Kevin O'Shea, the BBC's drama press officer, and was told, quote, no decision has been made, unquote. Mm. So uh, a lot of uh, alternative facts being mixed in with unsubstantiated talk there, Mark. Yeah, no decision has been taken... Uh, that's a lot of rubbish because it was those sort of hopeful statements at the end wasn't it really especially towards 1990 and 1991 <laughs> and it kept saying the door's not closed yet and all sort of stuff so yeah that was par for the course back then uh, new series fans need to understand that there was like with missing episodes in the Omni Room there was a lot of false hope and clinging on for dear life uh, on the you know the, the whiff of a chance that Doctor Who would be allowed to continue into the 90s but uh, obviously it wasn't to be I wonder how when the new series does come to an end, how people will react. I mean, obviously, they've got social media these days, so we'll go nuts for maybe a couple of days. Oh, I definitely will go nuts. People will, There'll be people uploading YouTube videos of them weeping as they look at themselves adoringly in the mirror. It's that, self, it's that sort of you know, fan onanism that really just turns me off. They, they will be weeping, breastfeeding, gnashing of teeth, tearing of hair, crying you know doing haikus about how much they love Tennant and they miss Smith and all that sort of thing it'll be it'll be vomit inducing but thankfully they'll move on to something else I wonder if I'd say old farts would be more subdued in our uh, rage because we've gone through it uh, a number of times yeah I don't, well for me it wouldn't be necessarily that it would just be it Doctor Who has just about reached the point where it's just another TV show and mm. I think that in time given the the show will be given a rest uh, and much like Star Trek, it'll come back in maybe four or five years, perhaps. But it, it is now, you know, it, it is something that the BBC could launch, rest, launch, rest, you know, well past our lifetimes if they wanted to. And from the same uh, page, it says, Fandom is recoiling in shock at the announcement of the first director of season 26. Nick Mallett, arguably the least popular JNT appointed director, is returning to direct Ian Briggs's. Uh, script retitled The Walls of Fenric. Mallet was responsible for Robert Holmes's Mysterious Planet and Stephen Wyatt's Paradise Towers in seasons 23 and 24 respectively and has been accused of reducing two potentially dramatic scripts to farce with unimaginative direction. His appointment further fuels rumours that JNT no longer has the power to appoint his own directors as it has been believed that Ben Aranovich's script Storm Over Avalon was deliberately moved down a notch from the opening story of season 26 in the hope that it could be paired with a high-caliber dramatic director. There is still no confirmation of the final story and fears are mounting its delay, maybe because it might ultimately wind up the series for good. It's sort of vaguely right, because Battlefield, apparently, they did ask Graham Harper to come in and direct it. 
but uh, he was otherwise engaged. So they got Michael Kerrigan. Yes, there was a lot of gnashing of teeth when Nick Mallet was announced uh, that he was the director of Curse of Frederick, but, you know, he proved us all wrong. It's actually a very well-directed, uh, taught uh, adventure. The underwater sequences, though, actually uh, directed by JNT, which the Cyber Massacre sequences in Five Doctors proved that he was probably a much better director than he was a producer. How does one direct from underwater? Was JNT in scuba gear and just sort of miming actions? Or? Let's make magic underwater. Yeah, look, I love Curse of Fenric. I think it is probably in the top five stories for me of that era, of that decade, actually. So, And we'll see this time and again with DWB where this sort of, you know, anti-anticipation in a sense, you know, Nick Mallett, he's got a bit of a track record of not being the greatest director or not rising to the material, not even improving the material, but um, he actually, what he did with Curse of Fenric was nothing short of, you know, remarkable. It is, it is, it, it feels cinematic, uh, it feels epic, and uh, it's just, it's just a very re- well-realised uh, TV production. Maybe Nick Mallett's uh, forte was more in directing stories which ha- he had something to hang on to in terms of the setting, the period setting, like a 40s setting. He might have been actually a great director for, say, Delta and Bannerman mm. than what he did for Paradise Towers or The Mysterious Planet because they were obviously futuristic. He didn't get a handle on those, let's be perfectly honest. Yeah. But with, with, with Fenric, the setting and uh, obviously the, the, the high-quality calibre of the script, uh, he was able to turn it around. Yeah, yeah, I think... Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there, Mark. From DWB 65 in May 1989, it says, The Daleks on video. As expected, the Ark in Space and the Time Warrior are set to be released in the UK on June the 5th. And in a surprise move, the tapes will, be, will coincide with long-awaited release of the Daleks as a two-tape volume set. There has long been interest expressed and rumours abounding concerning the release of the first Dalek story with William Hartnell as a doctor going way back to 1984, but the major question has always been how would the BBC adapt seven episodes onto one tape? Instead, BBC Video have elected to retain the titles and credits to all seven episodes partly due to the fact that each episode was reprised was reshot and to edit each one onto the previous episode's cliffhanger would in most cases jar and spread them over to tapes. Apart from the fact that seven complete episodes would fit comfortably onto a four-hour videotape, there was speculation at one time that the first Doctor Who story trial by Gump for episodes will be released with episode one of the Daleks since episode four dovetails nicely into the Dead Planet. It just features four of the main characters, so no further clearances would be necessary. It would also have provided a very effective cliffhanger and incentive to buy the remaining six episodes on another tape since it would have ended with Barbara being menaced by something. That's a daft idea. Come on. Doctor Who fans aren't going to be too happy with that, are they? From an OCD perspective, <laughs> you've got to have an earthly child on one tape and then all seven episodes of Daleks on one tape. Because you can't have an earthly child slash Daleks Part 1 on a spine. That's just going to freak people out, isn't it? If they were forced to see that on their shelves, they'd fall to the ground twitching. Um, what actually <laughs> interested me was the assertion or the possibility that BBC mm. Video had a choice as to whether to retain the titles and credits. I think that would have caused an even bigger outrage and, and more falling to the ground frothing at the mouth if they'd turned them into... Well, I suppose they did turn... There, there were movie versions, weren't they? I think Brain of Morbius was released as a... A three-minute uh, VHS of the, <laughs> by the time they finished with it. Something as iconic, totemic as the Daleks in an incomplete version would have... Uh, there would have been much frothing. Did you buy the VHS tapes at all? No, well, I bought some of them, 
I bought. I remember distinctly buying at a uh, like a, a market, a collector's market, uh, Tomb of the Cybermen on, on VHS. This I didn't actually own my own video player. I had a friend who I went to university with, um, and who I worked for his, his father, uh, who did have a video player. So I would go to his place on the weekends, and uh, I'd rent from the local video store. So I remember seeing, I think, Seeds of Death, uh, definitely Tomb. What did I buy? I think I bought Five Doctors on VHS. Again, I didn't have a player, but no, I didn't buy the complete series. I, I just, I, I wasn't sure. I'm not quite sure why I didn't. It's probably just the expense, really. Mm-hmm. Even though I've got everything bar a handful now on, on, on D, uh, DVD. So what I did do, though, was rent them from a video store, rent a video player, and then by this stage, I'd have my own video player and cable them together and record, um, well, copy, frankly, onto blank tapes. These episodes, pretty dodgy copies, but um, I remember doing that once or twice or three times. Bit torrenting it via RCA cables. Yeah, it was nineties bit torrenting via the RCA cables, but uh, yes, yes. Mm, I bought the whole bloody lot. Did you? Did you buy the whole lot? Did they take pride of place anywhere? No, they were locked away in the cupboard. Bit like my War Doctor action figure. <laughs> Being held hostage, is it? In, <laughs> in the Doctor Who equivalent of Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, he's in his own time scoop. <laughs> Yeah, I bought the whole lot, and the shelves of the cupboard were sort of sagging with the weight of them. <laughs> and when they started releasing them on, on on DVD, I then started slowly selling them on eBay. But I always made sure that you know the next few months' releases made sure that I was comfortable that I could sell those and get the DVD. So yeah, then I yeah shifted a lot. Did you manage to sell all of them? Yeah, I got rid of the whole lot. Yeah, I shipped one big box off to some bloke in uh, I think Sunshine. It was. Uh, really? Just, yeah, just put them on eBay, put like 30 bucks, and yeah, shifted the rest of them, yeah. VHS is never going to be like vinyl, where no. picture quality on on a high-def television would be like watching it through soup. It would be terrible. <laughs> so, whereas vinyl, you know, you can buy a semi-decent turntable and listen to uh, 1982 with a bullet like I have been tonight. Very good. All right. Let's, uh, let's rush now to DWB 65 of May 1989. Had the Berlin Wall fallen by this stage, Mark? It must be very close. I think it was later, wasn't it? June, July, August, September. Yeah. Mid, mid, yeah. mid year. Seemed like it was a summer thing. I, from memory, there was no snow on the ground. But um, anyway, all right. So season twenty six. Season twenty six is shaping up to follow on the success of its predecessor. If advanced news is anything to go by. Was it a success, season twenty five? Do you think? I mean, apart from getting ratings of six million towards the end, was it a success? Well, after season twenty four, Mark, anything's a success, isn't it? I think in terms of quality of the story and visuals there was a marked improvement some a lot of people would argue and that's what i think they're leaning on here it's a very big lean but anyway keep going so under the subheading curse of fenric the season will inevitably be recalled as the season of the title changes well as history has shown that's not the case at all Uh, story one by ian briggs is now called curse of fenric uh, 7m probably because it isn't actually a werewolf story this entirely OB story commenced shooting on April 10th at the quaint English hamlet of Crowhaven. Set in Yorkshire during the Second World War, it contains an ecological subtext. With Nick Mallet directing, it probably comes as no surprise that among the cast are former Sale of the Century host Nicholas Parsons, masquerading as Vicar Wainwright. But in reality, and at the time of going to press, it is understood that David Bellamy may be putting in a cameo. What? That is insane. That's more alternative facts, I think. (laughs) Though purely in his acclaimed capacity as a botanist come TV presenter. Dinsdale Lansdon also stars as a doctor. This story is tipped to provide Sylvester with his first archetypal race of Who monsters. Costumes are by Who veteran Ken True, 
with design by David Lasky and Graham Brown on visual FX. And then under Battlefield, now this is uh, serial code 7N for all you train spotters out there. This replaces the far more evocative Storm Over Avalon, or even Storm Over Avelion, as the story's official title. Part OB, part studio, the setting is Cornwall, 1999, that futuristic year. And word has it the Doctor barely appears in episode 1, if at all. The Brigadier is back without unit. But with the backup of some other military source which will ultimately cast a shadow over his previously impeccable character. Not Torchwood, Mark, surely. The di- <laughs> <laughs> no, it was class. <laughs> it was the kids from class. Of the director is newcomer Michael Kerrigan, which bodes well as he directed the Knights of God episodes that Andrew Morgan didn't. What? <laughs> <laughs> How can they phrase that? It's like Andrew Morgan couldn't be asked turning up, so Michael Kerrigan stepped in. Everybody goes on about Graham Harper being the, uh, the classic series director that came back. Well, Kerrigan came back. He uh, directed an episode, I think, of the Sarah Jane Adventures. The DWB praises damnably, or damns with faint praise. You can't resist sticking the knife in. And the David Bellamy thing is just... It's not so bongos, isn't it? It's just... It never happened, as we know. The botanist David Bellamy... Noted environmentalist, of course. Correct. Would be appearing in a story set in the 1940s. You would believe well, it, you know? All this vegetation and all these vampires. Can, it, this doesn't make sense. It's absolutely As, as Claire Cuckoo stuff. wishes, Sir Patrick Moore appearing on Doctor... Oh, wait a sec, sorry. Okay. The next part of the article is subheaded, uh, The Survival. Uh, the Master Materialises Proper in No, not Cat Flap, but The Survival 7P, written by uh, Rona Monroe. They've completely misspelled her name there. Who some suspect is an alias. <laughs> it's just like the Paul Amor of the uh, of season twenty six. Well, does that mean an, an alias is actually writing the new episode for uh, series ten? Apparently, would it be an alias Who for? Knows? I mean, obviously, just get out the the alias, you know, unscrambler, and we'll work it out. But still, what Eric Sayward? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Eric Sayward, like Series 10 discussion, mate, is verboten. So, Anley is reportedly thrilled to be back, especially as he will be working without the encumbrance of either the Valiard or the Rani, the latter of whom is said to be gone for good because Pip and Jane own the character and, for some reason, maintain they will never work on the series again. Sporting a new and permanent costume, the story finds the Master doing Rani-like genetic experiments on a planet's inhabitants, turning them into leopard-like mutants. The story, also set in Ace's home territory of Perivale, features a fight scene between Anley and McCoy. Some of that's completely wrong, isn't it? Well, the genetic experiments thing is... It is wrong. And that's the thing, how they got the news, is basically all heard in the BBC bar, <laughs> third hand, passed down, gone for the blender, picked up the next day. It's Chinese whispers. Yeah, over a very bad telephone line, yeah. A couple of yeah. pints. Fueled by alcohol. Actually, what do you think of Survival Mark in three sentences? It was great. Hmm. I think that whole series is very good. I mean, Battlefield is probably the weakest of the, of the lot. I think it would have been better as a three-parter. But I think that whole series is a definite return to form. And, uh, of course, what does the BBC do? Cancel it. I mean, as we've, I think we've discussed uh, many, many episodes ago, it would have been interesting to see what they could have done with season 27. Because the, the, it was on the... I mean, assuming it, you know they could have convinced Sylvester McCoy to come back and maybe, you know, Cartmel stay as well. But hmm. Don't worry, Big Finish picked up the slap mark. I haven't heard any of them. Have you listened to any of them? No, I've got them somewhere, but um, yeah, one day maybe. One day. The next section is subtitled The Bestiary. The final story of the season is the confirmed, confirmed, title of The Bestiary 7Q for those train spotters still listening. And though set again in Perivale, it is in essence a Time Lord tale. 
Mystery surrounds the exact nature of the story, particularly as it is likely Ace will depart at the end of it. And with Sylvester and Cartmel's contracts also up by then, together with the renewed cancellation threat, these could explain why Mark Platt has had to perform so many rewrites on it. However, JNT is adamant there will be no regeneration this season or deaths among any of the principal characters. JNT has also gone on record in America as saying Sylvester McCoy has signed a contract for the 27th season, and he isn't planning on going anywhere either. And then I'll just wrap this up by reading the costume change subheading here. In keeping with the darker, more dramatic aspects of the season, likewise Sylvester's costume has been toned down. His coat, hatband, and tie will all be darker than in seasons 24 and 25. So they're referring here to Ghostlight, aren't they, Mark? They are indeed, which I think they've also got a bit confused with... The Order. Lungbarrow as well. They're sort of merged in a bit of oh, Lungbarrow. Mark Platt, of course. I think he did uh, submit Lungbarrow first as an idea or a partial script, I can't remember, and then moved on to onto this. So yeah, I think they've gotten slightly confused. That's not unlike DWM to be confused, is it, Mark? Confused and angry? No, not really. Like a drunk child, <laughs> confused and angry. <laughs> the only deaths among the, any of the principal characters was JNT's career after Doctor Who had finished. Well, that was on life support though, wasn't it, Mark? Yeah, really? yeah. It's sad. But it's this, sad. Might, right. this might cheer you up, Rob. Uh, new books. I'm cheered up already. Fantastic. Philip Martin is currently working on his aborted season 23 script, Mission to Magnus, and contracts are expected to be signed soon, enabling its target release as the third in the missing episode series. Uh, Target's new Doctor Who editor, Peter Darvel Evans, is also interested in novelising Doctor Who The Ultimate Adventure and is discussing with Terrence Sticks how the novel will need to be altered to make it suitable. He stresses that whatever the outcome, the songs won't be included. They missed a trick there, Mark. They could have actually added, uh, included the songs on a flexi-disc attached to the front of the book. Like uh, DWM did with that Absalom Dak song. Have you ever played the Absalom Dak song, Mark? Oh, I think once it was freaking awful, so... Yeah. Do, do we know who wrote it and, and, you know, did the music and who sung? I think the music was the same people who did Doctor in Distress, Hans Zimmer. <laughs> what, have you read uh, Mission to Magnus? Oh, years ago, and I thought it was awful. And then I, I did listen to the Big Finish audio, and it confirmed my uh, suspicion of awfulness. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't very good at all, actually. And I don't think even The Ultimate Evil was particularly good either. I've actually got it on my bookshelf right here. We may come to those titles in our Target uh, novelization book club one day. Yes, yes, we should, actually. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're feeling the hate for someone. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been very kind to a couple of them, have I? No, that's no. all right. Now, there's a bit of a sidestep here in DW66 uh, from June 1989. Slightly Doctor Who related, but here we go. Southern-based television company TVS have expressed an interest in financing Gaia Penvelin Productions' Sentinel Project, starring John Pertwee as Jason Havlin. And the series could be in production by October. With a budget of around half a million pounds per episode, the first series will comprise of 13 50-minute interlinked episodes, spaced out to one hour with inserted advertising, with the first two parts serving as a two-hour special to premiere the show. While that is in production for four months, hopefully starting in October, the company plan to raise the necessary funds for the other 11 episodes, which will establish the plot of the Earth under threat. There is already talk of a second series which would comprise much more of the self-contained episodes. Indeed, the Sentinel creator believes that, like Doctor Who, it could run and run. Sentinel, which is only a working title and will probably be changed, is aimed at the Robin of Sherwood slash Doctor Who type of family audience and is anticipated it will be scheduled either on Saturday afternoons at around 5.30pm or during the week between 7 and 8.30pm. And then there's a coming soon, 
We talked to Chris Leach in detail about this promising new project, which we hope to cover in all stages of its production. Or just get stuck at pre-production. <laughs> so, yes, Mark, I was just going to ask. Uh, clearly, this never made it to our television screens. No, uh, there's some pictures flying around. Actually, I think that it might have shot at least a seven-minute promo piece with uh, the great man... Uh, in his chair talking about what the premise of the show is. I think I think that's around somewhere. But mm-hmm. uh, there's some big Doctor Who names attached to it, like Terence Dix and Barry Letts were sort of uh, brought on board as creative consultants, I think. Voucher was tagged as a uh, script editor for it. So, you know, obviously had some great Doctor Who pedigree there, which uh, unfortunately wasn't being used on the series at the time. But, uh, yeah, it just didn't seem to uh, get the legs to run and run, as it says. Never even had a chance to take baby steps. No, um, not really. Did, no. Didn't get. Well, you would assume it's just a question of the funding, really. I suppose. Yeah, and look, if anybody was going to screen it, it would have been on the ITV networks because I mean the BBC by that stage was not interested interested in sci-fi at all. So well and truly washed their hands. It's um, it's interesting that I mean Pertwee would have been around seventy at that stage, wouldn't he, Mark? I think he was around that age. I mean, the interesting thing is when doctors left the role. The BBC sort of cast them to the wind, didn't they, really? They didn't sort of build up on their brand, as it were. So if Pertwee had sort of stayed around the, the, the organisation and, and became a, a face of the organisation, as it were, you know, he yeah. could have uh, started a show on, on, on the BBC because his of his high profile, I suppose, and if you like Doctor Who, sort of like a spin-off of Doctor Who now, really, but this one mm. would have probably been a success unlike the last one. Look, the time wasn't right, I think, basically. It certainly, um, yeah, it just was, it didn't seem right at that time. I mean, there was a lot, the only show really going at that stage was probably Red Dwarf. I don't know if Star Cops had finished by then, but certainly Red Dwarf is still going, but that was... That was a comedy show, really, isn't it? Now, Rob, this next story is going to get you very excited, and I think all your worries are going to be completely... will dissipate as soon as I read you out this uh, headline. Season 27 confirmed. Gasp! Sylvester stays. Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it, really? I could stop worrying now and just learn to love the bomb. Look, I'll read you the words of, uh, of comfort out now. Season 27 has been quote, more or less, unquote, uh, being confirmed. <laughs> and contrary to expectations, both within and outside the BBC, it will almost certainly be produced in-house at Television Centre. After months of intrigue and speculation, the BBC are believed to have done away with all thoughts of ending the series for the time being, at least, after the encouraging ratings for season 25 were analysed, together with renewed interest in the series generated by such ventures as the Ultimate Adventure stage play and the continued uh, success of associated merchandise, but the proviso remains that the series must continue to fund itself, i.e. with revenue from BBC Enterprises to a large extent. Sylvester stays. The success of Sylvester McCoy's portrayal of the Doctor is also thought to have prompted the BBC to invest renewed faith into the series. And there will be many jubilant at the news that McCoy has been has signed on for a fourth term, making him the longest-running Doctor to date after Pertwee and Tom Baker, although his low episode count will still be only second to Colin Baker's. Another notable fact is that season 27 will take Doctor Who into the 90s, but whether John Nathan Turner finally severs his links with the series to make way for a whole new era remains to be seen. As he approaches his 10th anniversary in the producer's seat, while not as confident as Margaret Thatcher about making another term in office, he is certainly keeping his cards close to his chest. And what does seem fairly certain is that Andrew Carmel will not be script editing a fourth season, but as to the fate of Ace, Sophie Aldred is understood to be considering an option for another year, 
but with the attraction of a host of other job offers for the talented actress, she may very well decide to stay put in Perryvale when season 26 climax Ghostlight draws to a close. Well, I'm relieved, Mark. Count me, colour me relieved. That's like reading a news story, you know, last year saying that uh, Hillary is on track to win the uh, presidential race, isn't it, really? Hillary wins, basically. It's like, it's like Truman holding up a paper that says, Dewey wins! <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I suppose this is the sort of thing that DWB peddled in. I mean, unsubstantiated rumour masquerading as fact, uh, leavened with a little bit of insider goss that gives the impression or the verisimilitude of actually being based on something other than a person's wishful thinking or even malicious gossip just to make the fans have false hope. Um, yes. This line sort of um, made me question things a little bit. The success <laughs> of Sylvester McCoy's portrayal of the Doctor is thought to have uh, prompted the BBC to invest renewed faith in the series. Now, if the BBC were looking at the audience appreciation index figures mm. for the McCoy years, unfortunately his uh, his Doctor hadn't particularly taken off, well, that sample audience anyway. Mm. And even when they brought the show back for the TV movie, uh, when it was proposed that they were going to bring Sylvester McCoy back, the BBC said initially, uh, no way, we'll bring Tom Baker back, thank you. Mm. Assuming any of this is uh, an actual fact based on fact... It's oh, inter- it would be. It would be, Rob. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's interesting that the, the echoes of today reach back as far as 1989, insofar as the obsession with uh, the, the, the series and, and making money from associated merchandise <laughs> sales. It... Uh, well, you know, the dollar is the great driver of everything in life, isn't it? So The tat will save the series. So from the same issue, Mark, headed Ultimate Adventure Update, David steps in from our theatre correspondent, Robert Cope. So at the time of writing, Mark Furness's Doctor Who tour is entering its seventh week of performances, and every sign is that the fans and the great British public are adoring it. Business has, on the whole, been good, with John Pertwee still as popular as he ever was in the title role. The article then goes on to say, On the 29th of April, John Pertwee decided he was too ill to go on after five minutes of the matinee performance, so the curtain was brought down and ten minutes later, the show started afresh with David Banks as the Doctor and Chris Beaumont, the American envoy, as Carl. I'm assuming Carl was uh, Banks' role originally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cope goes on to say, I had been fortunate enough to see the understudy rehearsals and thought then what a revelation it was to see David Banks giving an excellent interpretation of the Doctor. (laughs) And two sellout houses confirmed this that Saturday, the, the latter of which awarded David with a standing ovation. His costume comprised of a cream two-piece summer suit with a t-shirt and Panama hat. It was like Peter Davison's doctor with authority, really, and personally, in brackets should I be saying this, I think he would have made a much better doctor than Mr. Davison. Ooh. Don't insult someone and then, you know, be polite by calling <laughs> him Mr. Davison. David with faint praise, eh? I, for one, editorialises David Cope. <laughs> Certainly hope we get to see David giving his interpretation of the Time Lord again sometime during the course of the tour, although hopefully in less stressful circumstances. Big finish Mr. Trick there. What they should have done was with the Ultimate Adventure uh, play, done one CD with Colin and the other CD with David Banks. Oh, I'll tweet them now. The article then ends with uh, the heading Baker's Photo Call. John, writes Robert Cope, I am pleased to say, quickly shook off his flu with the help of some antibiotics and was back in time for the opening night at Bristol. The Lady Dalek mentioned in last month's Terence Dix interview is Claudia Kelly, who, while playing her other role as a flying ant person, there's a, there's a sentence you don't often see, actually broke her fingers in Liverpool. Oh, was that, well, that wasn't 
Wait a sec. Who else do we know lives near Liverpool with a Liverpudlian accent, Mark? I don't know, mate. I've got no idea. The wind's blowing in the right direction, but obviously not in the right direction to save this young lady's fingers. <laughs> but, it, but in true... <laughs> shambles, mate. Shambles. Hey, the, the fingers got broken sliding, uh, shutting the roller door down on the, on the, on the, on the factory in Wigan. Just trying to light finger a couple of film cans. Where are you going with that? Bang. All right, sorry. Let's get it together here, Mark. But in true showbiz tradition, she not only carried on in great pain until the end of the show, but didn't miss a single performance against Doctor's orders. She is now well on her way to recovery and should be flying about again very soon. Away from all the illness and injuries, Colin Baker came down to Bristol on 3 May for his production photo call. And it was great to see him back in his familiar costume and raring to go. No DWB article has ever welcomed <laughs> Colin Baker's costume. What is going on here? Colin will be in rehearsal with the company during John's final two weeks at Manchester and Oxford. Thereby, the unique situation arises that there will be, for two weeks only, two television doctors on tour. Or one in rehearsal and one performing. Opportunity lost there, wasn't it, really? That could have been the two Doctors 2.0. Now, Mark, you never flew back to Blighty to watch The Ultimate Adventure. Would that be correct? That was completely correct. Reportedly, not reportedly, there are video copies floating around on YouTube. Would that be uh, correct? Uh, I've seen a copy of a Colin Baker performance. I haven't seen one of the Pertwee performance. Okay. But, um, what, yeah. uh, two questions. What is the quality of the copy? Is it viewable for our audience? No, not really. And well, put it this way: if you've got a ten-inch CRT TV, it might be. Uh, but whacking it on your seventy-inch uh, high def, whatever you got, uh, uh, it would look like. Um, you're watching it through soup. <laughs> get your dinner rolls and just scoop it up. And when you were watching it on your ten-inch CRT TV, Mark, uh, what did you think of what you saw? I couldn't make much out of it because the audio was like this, <laughs> like that. So I didn't get much out of it, Rob. One thing about the story was that the line saying that's about the lady who, sm- who slammed her fingers into Phil's roller door. Mm. It says uh, she didn't miss a single performance against doctor's orders. Was that the medical variety or John Pertwee saying, get back on the stage, young lady? You're here all week, aren't you, Mark? I am. It is the Melbourne Comedy Festival coming up shortly. Exactly. How is our Bandrel Sock Puppet uh, <laughs> production going, Rob? Um... Uh, slowly Slowly, I've got to knit them Mark okay just leave me alone I've got to knit them stitch one pearl one stitch one pearl one well our next story though Mm -hmm. uh, might help you uh, give you some incentive to uh, stitch pearl and whatever you have to do puzzle what do Doctor Who's biggest fan a one time target cover artist and a former Doctor Who production office secretary have in common I don't know Mark what do Doctor Who's biggest fan, a one-time target cover artist, and a former Doctor Who production office secretary have in common? Well, the answer is Sarah Lee, not the cheesecake, Mm. and Paul Mark Tams have teamed together on Ian Levine's Sidewalk record label for a truly ghastly song titled Take Away the Rain! Exclamation mark! Take Away the Rain? Is he he got a a guitar keyboard on that little photo? He looks like the guy... From Pseudo Echo, but I think the guy from Pseudo Echo actually had talent. So you know, yeah. looking at this very dodgy black and white photo, that looks like Jason Donovan on the right and Julia Sawalha with a uh, perm. It does look a bit uh, Donovan-esque on the right, but yeah. I thought she looked a little bit like uh, Tapau. Do you remember Tapau? No. No. Did the song no. Heart and Soul? It's quite a good song. I'll, have to, I'll YouTube that later tonight when the world is asleep and can't hear me being embarrassed. So if I can find a copy of it, I'll put it on. How's that? How's that? Can we ask Ian? What if we can tweet in and ask him? No, you got blocked, didn't you? So we can't. 
also been blocked by this week, Rob? Uh, the Wigan Rascal, I think. But that was some <laughs> months ago. I will say that I've still found more of power than Phil. So People are dropping off as we do, so I go back to that well again. Have you watched the Blu-ray yet? Uh, I don't have the Blu-ray. I've seen it in uh, at my local uh, JB Hi-Fi. But uh, I've not um, not purchased it yet, Mark. Oh, okay. Is a uh, well the DVD, the single DVD is going for the princely sum of fifteen dollars ninety eight. Oh really? Whereas the Blu-ray is twenty four ninety eight at my local retailer. So is that two discs or is it one disc? I'm assuming it's two disc. I think it's the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray is two disc here in Oz, isn't it? I don't know. I got the um, British Steelcase version, so it was about thirty five dollars. <sighs> it was. That's too much money, Mark. Just it's what? still wrapped in plastic. <laughs> I haven't watched it. Are you looking forward to, speaking of, are you looking forward to the revived uh, Twin Peaks? Uh, yes, actually. Mm. I'd like to go back and watch that show from the from the beginning. I heard, I heard the uh, Julie Cruz's um, Falling. That's mm. um, sort of, I heard that on the radio. That's a lovely days, song, yeah. that. It is a lovely song. Actually, I did have the Twin Peaks soundtrack. I had it on CD. I, can't, I think I sold it, though, many years ago. That's actually quite good. Antonio somebody. Battle Menti. We'll go, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. All right. Uh, the next line is, Hopes fade for movie. Time is running out for Doctor Who, the movie. And staff on the project have been told it's been cancelled indefinitely. Well, how can something be cancelled indefinitely? And <laughs> <laughs> cancelled for perpetuity. Too ambitious is a byline here, Rob. Coast to coast, the producers paid the BBC more than £50,000 in 1987 for a two-year option in which to make the film. That's bloody cheap, isn't it, really? I mean, what would Hollywood get for that now? They'd be paying millions for, for a licence. Yeah, I would agree. There'd be a substantial whack of cash to get the option. Yeah. So it's a, it's a hard one. I mean, do the BBC really want to lose con- control uh, of their, you know, their, uh, their, their, their product, their brand, if they sort of flog the option or the rights off to, to make a movie? I, I think they would be best served uh, doing it themselves and perhaps raising the money elsewhere. I predict in three or four years' time, it'll be our co-production with a, a streaming service. Of, well, there, uh, there are rumours flying around that the BBC will have to look outsource all of its production. It'll have to come from private companies, private production companies, and they won't be able to make anything in-house in terms of drama, at least. I wonder if then the commercial arms will become, you know, like worldwide, will become their own production houses. Well, that mm. might make sense. Back to the rant. But sources close to the film suggested it fell through primarily because their intentions were too ambitious in wanting to make it the biggest monster movie ever with around 180 monsters, which bogged the project down from the start. And because the film was so hyped up, they found they couldn't live up to expectations. With the rights to produce a Doctor Who film running out this year, the BBC will have the options back to lease to another company from 1990. Incidentally, Ken Russell, director of many of the arty films, of the late 60s and early 70s, like Tommy, the boyfriend and lair of the White Worm, is understood to have been approached by Coast to Coast to direct the movie. Anyone who's read uh, the book by the Nth Doctor by the the Lafissiers will have seen uh, at least one synopsis or an extended article about uh, the gestation, the failed gestation of the the movie project. Was the time right for that sort of thing back then, Mark? No, timing was completely off. I mean, the show wasn't doing very well in terms of public recognition. When the show got cancelled, it could have brought it back in the early 90s as a big feature film with a big name attached to it. But it was just a completely wrong time, to be perfectly honest, I think. Given the sort of science fiction that we were getting in the, in the early 90s, I'm not entirely sure that Doctor Who would have been well served 
by, or even the late 80s actually, but, uh, would have been well served by coming to the big screen. I, I, I think it would have been pretty generic and not, not the sort of thing that we would expect these days, for instance. No, that's right. But I mean, it was and, an extended saga. It just it just rolled on and on. And I remember looking at British papers that come into the news agency I was working at, and every week it seemed like, you know, Michael Palin was being cast, or the the fellow from uh, the Phantom of the Opera um, was Dun- being Michael Crawford, Michael Crawford, Dudley Moore. Yeah, it was just it was a never ending parade of nonsense uh, names being thrown up who were never going to be involved. So no, I'm interested no. that Ken Russell, who directed Lair of the White Worm, which I think is based on a Bram Stoker uh, novel or short story. Uh, but apparently nudity are plenty and the white worm is a code for something else apparently so mm, interesting interesting mm, mm. now shall we uh, move to DWB 67th of July 1989 yes why not I'm thinking the wall falls this month Mark it's... I always thought it was later I th- while you're reading this out I will uh, be rude and look on, I'll look on Wikipedia and find out when it was so the article begins or is headed the production team fail and bid for Fenric 5 parter the Program Planners Department at the BBC... Is actually a program a department? The Program Planners Department. At the BBC have reportedly quashed the Curse of Fenric production team's request for an extra episode in order to prevent the story becoming another silver nemesis fiasco. As reported last issue, all episodes of this dramatic new story, which Sylvester McCoy himself describes as his most atmospheric to date, overran by up to 10 minutes each, and the team are loath to edit them. Apparently, they were refused the extra episode, which would have brought season 26 up to 15 episodes, the longest for four years, supposedly because program planning couldn't find a slot for it. But sources suggest their attitude is very much that the production team, led by director Nicholas Mallett, brought the fault on themselves and so should sort it out themselves. The only valid option open to John Nathan Turner is to trim one of the remaining three-part stories down to two episodes, thereby providing Fenric with the necessary extra 25 minutes. But with survival having just commenced production, this now seems unlikely. Therefore, some delicate surgery will be... Rec- delicate surgery? They're talking about taking 10 minutes out of her episode. <laughs> okay, sorry. Therefore, some delicate surgery will be required on the story in order to maintain it in its present high standard. Should Fenric obtain its much-needed extra episode, it will be only the fourth five-parter in Doctor Who's history. Read this, train spotters. Joining the Demons, 1971, and the back-to-back Mind Robber, which also started life as a four-parter, and the Dominators, 1968. Bell and Wall... November 89. Oh, I was wrong. All right. Not for the first time either. Government officials opened it up in 1989, November. Mm. Its demolition officially began on the 13th of June 1990. It was completed in 1992. In actual fact, the opening of the wall I read recently um, was down to one East German officer who either didn't get the right information or misinterpreted the information he was given and basically ordered the gates be Mm. opened. Uh, he recently died, so that uh, un- almost unsung hero uh, is responsible for what happened in November. No- well, there were lots of things happening that were responsible, but yes. Anyway, mm. uh, what do you think of this story here about, uh, is it Bunkum? Well, I don't think, it- well, it wasn't because they had all that extra footage they could whack on the, the VHS and-, and the subsequent DVD release. Well, that was actually inserted into the, I can't remember, There was it wasn't time-coded at all, obviously. This is actually broadcast quality footage they were able to, mm. I think the VHS had like six minutes and, and the DVD... Uh, had a bit more. I mean, the thing is, Nick Mallet is only shooting what the what's on the script, right? So if the script yes, was so overrunning, then the script editor should have been at the stopwatch when they're doing the producer's run and timing mm. it there and then and making edits then. If the script is over long, then the responsibility is uh, on the script editor. I'm feeling inclined to drag out Curse of Fenric and watch it again. 
I really, I really like it. I really like it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great idea. All right, now we move on to my favourite topic, Mark. I've pulled this out for you, Rob. Oh, thank you. Uh, what? The, the article, I mean. Is, is this the layer of the white worm all over again? <laughs> it's train spotting too. Anyway. Oh, thank you. Oh, look, thank you. I really do appreciate it. it. It reads, be still my beating heart. No, it says, new hope for missing episode. Hopes are mounting for a return to the archives of another missing Doctor Who episode. A sidebar here. DWB made its its name very early on. Like Eddie Maguire finding all those premiership cups at the beginning of the footy show's run. Uh, DWB made its name with announcing uh, the return of lots of missing episodes, didn't they? They did. A lot of their articles were quite uh, missing episode focused. They had like, mm. uh, I remember they had like a, a missing episodes chart where you could, uh, little blocks to indicate, little black uh, blocks to indicate that uh, episode was uh, in the archives or not, and every time an episode was recovered, you could get a black pen out and just <laughs> populate little bo- fill a little box in. So yes, uh, yes, they did get their name on that because uh, you know DWM did the winter special, and that was really it. That was it. That, that started the whole yeah, chain of events that yeah. currently lead to our current. Uh, disgruntlement (laughs) (laughs) malaise I was going to say malaise the long long malaise of the last Mm. three or four years all right the British Film Institute the BFI is believed to have somehow somehow obtained the episode from an unknown source and are apparently negotiating its safe return with the BBC I'll come back to this paragraph in a moment Mark although its identity if it does exist isn't known it seems almost certain to be a season three art now these last two paragraphs (laughs) Uh, this is why print media is dead. Okay. Fake, news. Fake, Fake news. Fake news. Is believed somehow, <laughs> unknown source, apparently, if it does exist, isn't known, it seems almost certain. Those words have somehow come together to make a magnificent article. Mark. So many contradictions, so little time. <laughs> this this never came to fruition. The, the, the next find was tomb in, uh, in 90... No, this was actually predicting the Galaxy 4 uh, return some 20-odd years later. So they did get it right, Rob. Yes, because the BFI was involved in, in screening it at least, weren't they? Yeah, they just... And it is a season three Hartnell. Yeah, so there you go. I think they were right. Apologies to Mr. Lee or Levy. It breaks my rocky heart that there's so little of season three Hartnell and Troughton in existence. It really is. It's just a sad thing. Uh, interesting stuff in there, which we'd love to get our hands on, wouldn't we, Rob? Yeah. Anyway, latter day Hartnell and, and you know baby steps Troughton is is something that I'd dearly love to see. But anyway, one day it shall come back. Yes, one day. Say that with a Liverpudlian accent. <laughs> <laughs> I do it like David Bradley did. One day I'll come back. Yes, one day. <laughs> you got the tone all wrong. Uh, yeah, uh, I've I've heard. Oh, the gossip, the gossip oh, that you yes, hear about I, the new series. I, yeah. Let's like, no, verboten, no, Mark. No. The word for the podcast is verboten. No. But if it's proven right, we were right. <laughs> <laughs> we just couldn't discuss it. No. No. All right. David Bradley uh, is back or Paul McGann is back? Or Tom Baker is back? Tom Baker's back. Colin Baker could be back. You fired off a tweet a while ago. tweet was... Uh, which living actor to have previously played the Doctor would you like to return in the role to replace Capaldi? That was the question, and I think your answer is actually right. I think a lot of people were pumping for McGann. Somebody did write Colin Baker. Well, yes.
you've got mail. Now we move on to our letters section, Mark. We'll channel the thoughts of what uh, Doctor Who fans are thinking back in the day. What do you think, Rob? Yes, now looking at these letters, Mark... Um... Angry, angst, bile... Britain, I don't think, is known for its wine, but its fans certainly know how to wine. And Dan Murphy certainly know how to sell wine. So, yeah. <laughs> I was actually looking at this and I was hoping to see a well-known fan's name. And indeed, the very last one does contain a well-known fan's name. Yeah, I saved the best to last, but how about you can skip to that one first? How's that? All right, well, let's do that. This, this involves the one and only uh, uh, Mrs. Kate Orman from DWB 67, July 1989. Uh, Kate Orman from New South Wales, Australia, the worst state in this great commonwealth of ours. And appalling coffee makers as well. Yes, dated the 17th of May 1989, which we're coming up to the 28th anniversary of this very letter. Kate begins, Nick Mallett as director? Terrific! I can't wait to see Curse of Fenric. Nick Mallett's direction has the speed and innovation that a zappy adventure story needs. Remember the sheer pace of Mysterious Planet? the way a fast cut or point of view shot could lend immediacy to a scene, and that striking first shot of Drathro, sweeping up the robot's huge body to emphasise his bulk and power. Or how about the mix of comedy and drama in Paradise Towers, requiring both dramatic shots, like the first appearance of the transformed chief caretaker in silver light and swirling steam, and silly shots, like the very close face-to-face encounters with the chief and deputy chief caretakers. Mallet's tracking shots of the cleaning machines, following them to reveal a protruding boot or scrap of clothing, were one of the creepiest aspects of the story. Yes, I'm looking forward tremendously to season 26, especially Fenric. And one thing I am sure of, I'm going to watch the story before I dare criticise it. Mm. Keep, keep that in mind before we, before we launch into the rest of the letters. <laughs> or even series 10. Kate Orman, one of Australia's finest science fiction uh, and fantasy writers. Gets it completely wrong with her views on Paradise Towers and Mysterious Planet. But every opinion is valid, isn't it, Rob? In this post-fact world of alternative facts, every opinion is valid. Um, no, no, that's, look, that's fair enough that Kate uh, had that opinion then and no doubt has it now. It's just a pity that her output is, is not what it deserves to be, actually, as, as a writer, because she's responsible for some of the very best uh, new adventures um, that were released. That Hummingbird was excellent, wasn't it? Right? Yeah, it was. It, yeah. Was, it, was, uh, it showed that the deeper and broader tag for the new series uh, could actually work it just wasn't merely advertising it was actually a mission statement that they managed to sort of um hitch, hitch onto so all right so let's 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 go backwards in time a little bit and get to these letters mark that's right so we're going to go uh, we've gone forward now we're going to go back to may 89 from dwb 65 this follows on from kate's letter and says disbelief at mallet appointment uh this is by ian macy uh from berkshire so uh on the 28th of the 3rd 89 it just seems so Ooh. long ago, doesn't it, really? We, uh, we're rolling up to the 20th anniversary on that one, mate. Hope you're well, Ian. It's um, next week. Yeah. Uh, please still be with us, Ian. And if you are, drop us a line at uh, 42todoomsday at gmail.com. With I'm Alive in the heading. Uh, can, the, <laughs> can the BBC be serious? Is Nick Mallett really directing Ian Briggs's Wolf Story? How can John Nathan Turner or Mark Shivers possibly think he can satisfactorily direct this story when he has already shown he couldn't suitably direct two of the best Who writers scripts? Compare The Mysterious Planet with the Caves of Androzani or Paradise Towers with The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. It is noticeably the direction that lets both stories down. Having cast the likes of Joan Sims and Bridget Bryars One Wonders who will turn up in The Walls of Fenric. Ungrateful Storm Over Avalon was moved along 
uh, but couldn't one of the three-parters have been made the first story? Whatever happened to Fiona Cumming, Matthew Robinson, Ron Jones, and Michael Owen Morris? If J&T's own branded directors must be used, at least use one of the better ones. Ron Jones, better one? What's he talking about? He's on the source. Again, uh, complaints before having seen the episode, but um, that's par for the course. I'll, uh, I'll read the next two letters here, Mark. Uh, Jeremy Spencer from Cheshire, 21st of March, 1989. Which, is that today? It is! It is! It's the 21st of oh, March today too. as we record. Happy birthday, Jeremy! And indeed, happy anniversary to your letter. Yes, uh, wow. Well, look, I'm, 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 I don't know why I'm excited, but anyway. Thanks for another good DWB. This is referring to number 64. But I think the headline about the new Doctor Who cancellation threat should have been larger, and I was equally <laughs> somewhat surprised that the story, which was and should have been the main story, was put on page five. It's probably just fatigue, uh, Jeremy. <laughs> and you couldn't find a big enough font. <laughs> no. The letter set had been completely used up. This is pre-desktop, guys. Yes. A major leak of a story which should have shocked was dampened down by being put there. I understand the allegations could not be wholly substantiated. Did you actually read the article? They couldn't be anyway substantiated. Uh, Uh, But surely now all the evidence points to the final Doctor Who season to be 26, as I stated Mm. in my last letter. Could Operation Who be relaunched ready and waiting for when the BBC finally make up their minds? If the BBC do axe the program, they will be killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Now, all the way from New York, New York, Bill Edmonds, uh, New York, USA... Uh, since we've been doing it, the 23rd of March, 1989. <laughs> what annoys me about Jonathan Powell's supposed decision is that it makes no sense from even a business standpoint. Well, the BBC is not a business. That's me editorialising. Okay. No matter what ratings the show replaces who gets, it will never make as much money for the BBC. And that, when you get right down to it, is the purpose of any corporation ma- making money. The editor uh, inserts himself at this point by saying, in very hard-to-read italics, these are just a cross-section of many letters we received on the subject, but as we clearly stated, the story cannot be substantiated 100%. Not even 1%, I think. There is no point in taking any form of action or dwelling on the topic in depth at this juncture, because until an official BBC statement is released, no one is likely to take any notice. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> the BB- I don't know what to say to that. The BBC would, of course, deny all allegations. Of course. Readers are advised to sit tight for the time being and await further news about the BBC's plans for Doctor Who's future. Yeah, sit tight for the seven years, guys. Strap yourselves in. And the next one is about the ultimate adventure. Uh, Alexander Maxwell from East Sussex uh, writes on the 31st of the 3rd, 89, uh, Ultimate Adventure Views. Having seen Doctor Who, The Ultimate Adventure, I'm glad to say it is a decided success. This is due to John Pertwee's effortless, charismatic portrayal, Terence Dick's uh, archetypal Doctor Who script, and the amazing special effects. The Daleks and Cybermen were used properly for a change, especially the latter whose aspect of menace harked back to the 60s classics. However, there were a couple of failings. David Banks was OTT at times as Carl. But the main fault was the ridiculous musical-slash-pseudo-cabaret interludes which came across as totally gratuitous, examples of showbiz indulgence. Noting JNT's credit as creative consultant, shouldn't be surprised if he was behind the cabaret interludes which seemed to jar with Dix's script. Despite JNT, though, the production was entertaining and well-executed, well done to all involved. Imagine if Ian Levine had been creative consultant, Mark. The interludes would have been high energy, surely, or even Northern Soul. It would have been, uh, was it Take Away the Rain? (laughs) (laughs) 
I just uh, I put a call out to our listeners. If anyone actually attended a performance of the Ultimate Adventure and would like to, in just a couple of paragraphs, recap their memories of that, that would be great. Uh, obviously, the Forty Two to Doomsday Gmail dot com email address, or you can even tweet us at Forty Two to Doomsday. Um, what's the other one, Mark? Oh, on Facebook, our Facebook uh, our page. Uh, again, if you if you went and saw it. Uh, and what were your thoughts were we'd love to hear from you and we'll read them out in an upcoming episode won't we Mark? That's a great idea actually and I know there's one person who saw it my mate pen friend Pete start writing in son because I know you went because you sent me the poster so you must have seen it I will say to our fans out there that there has been for the last two years a $50 voucher still on offer (laughs) that none of you you people have taken up so my hope that someone will respond is based on very little well hope actually but still uh, really if you if you went and watched it and we'd love to hear uh, your memories of it because um, it's a little appreciated uh, period in the show's history uh, it was on stage for a, a brief moment and uh, then went away and uh, it, it, as is the nature of uh, stage productions they can be very ephemeral very ephemeral it was a stage equivalent of the TV movie hmm Maybe it needed Eric Roberts in there to uh, dress up for the occasion. Maybe. Now we move on to uh, DWB 66, June 1989, Mark. So this one is um, headed, Williams Deserves Exposure by L. Hampton. Didn't want to reveal your gender, Mr. Hampton. Or is it Ms. Hampton? From Cheltenham. Where's Cheltenham in uh, the UK, Mark? Uh, it's in the UK somewhere. Excellent work. Excellent work. <laughs> <laughs> North what? Wales, I'm okay with the rest of the place. Mm. By the way, Mark, when when will Wales the, uh, launch an independence referendum? Well, they're the ones who've voted to uh, get out, so I don't think yeah. it's going to happen. Okay. Why isn't there a campaign to get some of Doctor Who's richest era onto tape? Hmm. I'm talking about the Graham Williams years and such gems as City of Death, Destiny of the Daleks, Image of the Fendal, Invasion of Time. Invasion of Time? And my personal favourite, The Sunmakers. They have... Hmm. They all have in common a strong story base. Yes, some of the acting is dodgy, the set's costumes sometimes poor, but this doesn't detract. The ratings for the period show the era was popular with the public. Well, when you've got no option, you will watch The City of Death, for instance. To watch Graham Williams' era of Doctor Who asks you nothing but to submerge yourself into the story and characters before you and the stories made sense. J&T would be wise to note that because the stories slash plots made sense, Williams could get away with murder, albeit under different circumstances. To be charged with a lack of imagination, plot is wholly more deplorable than to be moaned at because the Daleks were falling apart. The era deserves exposure. So at this stage, Mark, had the, uh, the Graham Williams era sort of fallen into disrepute? Yes. Uh, I don't think it helped that um, the, the common perception at the time was that the Williams era was poor. Uh, in the early 80s, JNT was seen as the show's saviour pumped up by Ian Levine and of course the the, te- the unfolding texts were basically a bit like Donald Trump uh, accusing Obama of wiretapping um, there was pointed uh, put downs of, of Graham Williams and unfortunately it wasn't until um, Graham died uh, in the early 90s that uh, his era started to be reappraised. I know Gareth Roberts is a big fan of that era Mm. And you know, um, and to be honest, I was probably guilty as well of, of slagging it off. And it wasn't until um, when the show was off, it gives you plenty of time to go back and, and watch the the earlier years. 
And I, I think that for what he he had to put up with in terms of lack of money and budget and, and uh, many other constraints, I think there's some fantastic stuff in the Williams era. Because I wasn't in fandom at any point in the 80s, that whole thing, or even the 70s to be frank, that, that whole anti-Williams uh, era shtick uh, passed me completely by. I've, 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 I mean, I've read about it and I've heard people, um, but I've never really... Uh, never really sort of carried a, a torch for, for any of that. I just, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, some stories, like any era, have their shortcomings, but there appeared to have been... Uh, look, I suppose coming after the Hinchcliffe and Holmes, you're going you're gonna to be pushing it uphill, aren't you, to sort of retain the, the same sort of love and, and devotion that the that, that, that fans had for that particular era. But you, you, you've got to give it to Williams, I suppose, in the sense that, I mean, it may have been because of production constraints, etc., etc., money and all that, but he's... His era is very varied in tone and story type, but I think it's probably, in a sense, richer for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hinchcliffe and Holmes, I, I love their stories, but uh, after a while, there is a sort of a certain monotone to what they were putting out. Uh, heresy, I know, but um, yeah. Uh, look, it's good to see someone back then in 89 was uh, willing to stand up for Graham Williams. And it's a real pity, actually, that he did pass away when he did, because... Uh, the, I think the, the evaluation or the re-evaluation was probably on its way hmm. uh, and it's just sad that his, his death may have hastened that and, and he sort of missed out on the, on the renewed appreciation of his work of his era. I remember reading, uh, I think it was in Sonic Screwdriver they were talking about uh, the director of The Horns of Nymon and I think his name was Ken, yeah, it's right, the director of The Horns of Nymon, they actually called him Kenny Scum McBain. Some fans just deserve the opprobrium that falls on them i mean if you can't say anything nice about a person that you've never met then you shouldn't say anything at all and that sort of nonsense does no one any good at all now we're about to wrap this up with the last couple of letters alan bednell of gloucestershire writes my favorite story is androids of tara my favorite era is tom baker's and i'm a robert holmes fan this may seem a strange combination but i don't analyze anything i see merely ask myself have i been entertained Depending on the answer, I just watch each individual story. I see this as important in understanding how the general public see Doctor Who. The casual viewer will never become permanent if he or she is expected to follow the Swiss cheese plots of Time and the Rani, Time Lash, Twin Dilemma, Paradise Towers, without the indisputable charisma of Tom Baker or the like to carry it off. Myself and all my non-fandom friends, consciously or otherwise, feel Doctor Who ended after Castrovalva Part 4, excluding Frontios and the case of Androzani, in the true sense of Sidney Newman's concept. Really? Sidney Newman was all about gun runners and drug addiction? But anyway, it insults me to hear of a Graham Williams revival as being trendy because his era stood as one of the most entertaining periods of the show. And I await the arrival of Androids of Tara on video. Then the debate will begin in earnest. Yeah, isn't that interesting though? It says, depending on the answer, is, uh, it goes, I see it is important in understanding how the general public see Doctor Who, the casual viewer will never become permanent if he is expected to follow Swiss cheese plots. Could that be applied to what's going on, what we perceive to be going on in the uh, new series at the moment? Uh, verboten, Mark. Oh, break it for a second. <laughs> what, what do you think? Sometimes you feel that Moffat is writing for the current viewership and not attempting to reach out to a broader audience. There, I mean, the complaint has been that Capaldi's portrayal via Moffat is too is is not conducive to a family audience that the time slot is go, it's going out on is not conducive to a family audience because of the type of stories that Moffat and Co are writing 
So um, if you want to... Look, it appears that Chibnall is the great populist. Uh, so hopefully, in a sense, he might go down that RTD route of broadening out the storytelling, uh, the, the means of storytelling or the storytelling itself um, to attract a, a larger audience, Mark. Trying to appeal it to a more broader church. That's the second time I've used that gag during this whole podcast. Brilliant, Mark, brilliant. It's a gift that keeps on giving, doesn't it, really? I believe that's it for Drag from the Archive. You have one more? We actually had a late-breaking letter come through. Oh, brilliant, love it. From Jed Sweeney, down in Geelong. Hello, Jed. Footy season's about to break on us, Jed. Funny you should mention that. Here we go. Let me get the letter. So strap yourself in, young Rob. I'm strapped. Strapped for action. Strapped for cash. Strapped for cash. That should be our Patreon uh, byline. (laughs) That's trademark us. That's trademark us. How's it going, Mark? The 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 homeless person I hired has made off with the cash, so uh, not going very well, basically. An advertisement in the uh, Patreon Pravda. Anyway, okay, so it says memories of season twenty six uh, is in this title. He goes, hi guys. Uh, I have only two real memories of season twenty six. Firstly, only seeing the first trailer about twenty four hours before the series started. It was a shot of the landing of the knights into the side of the hill. Secondly, was the warm glow of how good the season was and what a delight it was after the Barry Crocker that was season twenty four. Barry Crocker, <laughs> ex partner of uh, Katie Manning, isn't it? Uh, he wrote the thing for Neighbours, didn't he? The he thing? did. But for those who aren't from Australia, Barry Crocker. Uh, slang for shocker because it, it rhymes <laughs> right on as we got into the 1990s it became even more of an annoyance that the production team had made a decent fist of it with the last broadcast season only for the BBC to cancel it by use of a cone of silence I think they thought if we don't say we are cancelling then there won't be a backlash and no doctor in distress proof if ever it was needed that clouds do have silver linings <laughs> Sorry, I can't remember much apart from S. McCoy gurning his way through a scene in Battlefield where he threatens Mordred with a terrible something. Not the best simile I've ever heard. Anyway, uh, round one this weekend, so Khan the Cat is Jed. Would a terrible something be the lair of the white worm, perhaps? Or the white worm itself? I think it'd be more uh, the Cat is winning round one, wouldn't it? The football starts. We're going to bore our listeners with this. Uh, North Melbourne plays West Coast this weekend, so hopefully we'll have a win first up. Thank you very much for that uh, letter, uh, Jed. Um, we do encourage all our listeners to send uh, correspondence through to us so we can read it out and uh, hopefully spark a conversation. Any memories from season 26 for you, Mark? Uh, I remember getting a audio tape of the trailer mm. from my mate Pete. I think we are waiting for the uh, season to start proper because what we used to do was put uh, seven episodes on one three-hour tape and, and send it over. So as a taster, he put on the uh, an audio copy of the uh, of the trailer for me and a couple of documentaries from his local radio station on Doctor Who. I think the guy was a Doctor Who fan on this radio station and put some documentaries together. And I wish I still had the tape. Does the trailer exist still? I don't know. I think so. Oh, the way you don't retain the tape, that's right, isn't it? No, no, because I did have uh, continuity and a couple of things, but I don't think I kept it. I definitely didn't this keep it. This is from your contact, Pete? Yes. So if Pete's listening, maybe he can recall back in the dim, distant past which radio station it's in the uk is that right yes these docos uh, broadcast from they might be interesting to try and track down pete i expect a letter buddy very good so mark that is the end of our drag from the archive episode in lieu of not really coming up with another topic we thought we'd just wheel that out our next uh, podcast i think i'm just going el natural with me and richard talking about doctor who computer games this will be the very first episode that i don't appear on mark yes well i've got nothing to contribute to it so mm. <laughs> I don't feel like that. 
I actually will be in the envious position of being a listener, and I'll just sit back and on my uh, next to the pool with my pina colada, getting caught in the rain, and, and uh, yes, and uh, and have a good listen to when it comes out. I look forward to it. So if anybody has any memories of playing Doctor Who computer games, uh, particularly in the 8-bit and 16-bit era, uh, send them through uh, very quickly so Richard and I hopefully can uh, read them out. So yes, that'd be fantastic, actually, because uh, we, we got the Commodore 64 stuff covered, but not the BBC Micro stuff. So yes, we put a, a, a tweet out, we put something out on Storkbook, but uh, alas... Uh, just like Phil, not responding. I keep on calling him. I, I call him every day, and he won't answer the phone for some reason. That's sad. Why wouldn't he answer my calls? I'm, I'm ringing him. The intervention order probably has something to do with it. It doesn't cross jurisdictions, Mark, okay? There's no... Or time zones. <laughs> Interpol is not yet involved. So once again, thank you very much for listening to our latest episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast and signing off. I've been the head of the NSA, Admiral Rogers. And I've been Director Comey from the FBI. And we will be tapping your line soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.
Thank <laughs> you.